and welcome to another episode of Making It to the Mic. I'm your host, Stephanie Pam Roberts, and today I'll be chatting with Jamie Muffet. I know Jamie through the voice actors of NYC Facebook group, and he's also the co-chair of an amazing voiceover conference called Evocation, which is all about the business side of voiceover. Jamie's career has spanned many types of genres, including commercials, corporate narration, and video games. He's also a bit of a tech guru and shares a ton of great information about home studios. Here's my conversation with Jamie Muffet. Hello, Jamie. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Well, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. So I always start every episode with a, uh, the same question. How did you make it to the mic? And what was your journey? What did you do before voiceover? Okay, well, I started doing voiceover in 2009, back in the UK. I now live in the US. And before that, I was in sort of pretty much in music full time, um, in sort of wearing various hats. And then um, we had this opportunity, my wife is American, we had this opportunity to move to America. And I was doing that with the idea that I would continue to pursue music in in New York, where we moved to. And um, that was pretty much the plan. But because I didn't really have any connections or anything, I wanted to see if I could try and start something while I was in the UK that I could continue when I got there as a sort of, you know, as some income, right? Um, so I dipped my toe in the water of doing it back in the, back in the UK in like the July and we were planning on moving in the in the November so of 2009 so it wasn't really much of a ramp up but I put my name on a very well-known online <laughs> um, marketplace that's what they're called um, and within I think what was it like two days or something I, I, I booked a gig and I was like oh that's interesting. Um, I had the recording gear because I did a lot of recording stuff anyway. So it was very easy for me to just put together a crappy demo and um, reply to jobs and things like that. So it was initially um, a practical thing. In addition to that, I, I sort of harbored this ambition of being able to work for myself and work for myself on my own hours because music is very much an evening nighttime thing mm -hmm. and I was sick of that <laughs> um so it was it, that attracted me to it and um of course having the having the equipment helped so um I'm rambling but I basically came in with the sort of uh, idea that it would be a sort of little stopgap job um to see me through and then quickly developed and took over and as music you know receded voiceover took over and became my my main source of income now I do that entirely you know ex exclusively now and podcasting um but it's it's basically uh that's kind of how I awkwardly entered into the voiceover industry I love that I don't think I knew that origin story I knew that you had done music before but I guess I didn't realize how one kind of fed into the other yeah I mean I had done you know I'd like engineered the odd voiceover session um and only when I just, we realized we were moving to America did I think, oh, well, I've got a stereotypically English accent. Maybe I can like monetize that somehow. <laughs> um, I never really thought I had a particularly interesting voice. I still don't think I do really. But um, that was the thing. That was the catalyst that, that, you know, made me make that leap. And it wasn't really a leap as such, but it was, you know, just a little dip of the toe in the water of voiceover. And um and yeah, I mean, I, I did love acting when I was young, but music just dominated. That was just the thing that I, I threw myself into. So it was a bit of a sort of coming back to my roots, I guess, because um, I took a, 
took a lot of acting classes. I went to like clubs and things like that to do acting and when I was very much younger. So it, it was always something that was in the back of my mind, but had been sort of clouded by music, really. Mm. So you had the acting training, it just had been kind of laying dormant. And then did this feel like you were getting back to that person, that that actor? It's funny, I I just discounted acting because this sounds incredibly arrogant, but I found it relatively easy. <laughs> and <laughs> it seemed like it didn't have much value, you know, because, you know, I, I could just like switch it on. And so I was attracted more to music because it was it was harder and seemed impossible. And so when I went back in, I was like, why am I making life harder for myself? Why am I doing things that I'm really, really struggling to, to succeed at when I could actually just maybe pursue something that I enjoyed and had some level of ability in? It did definitely feel like a sort of coming home in sort of a situation. That's a bit corny, but, you know, that's what it felt like. Where did you start in terms of genre? Did you start in commercials? Did you start in more of like a corporate narration? I mean, really throughout my entire career, I'm the British guy. (laughs) So (laughs) that, you know, runs the gamut, runs the gamut, that's the expression. Um, The very first job I did was just a corporate video. Um, And then I did, you know, explainer videos and I don't know if I got on TV for a while, you know, internet commercials and stuff like that. And I got in a series of audiobooks very early on in my career, which was enough to put me off doing audiobooks ever again. <laughs> it's not my thing either. No. Uh, you know, props, you know, I got into a bit of trouble in my Facebook group for, for saying that they're difficult and thinking that people thought I was demeaning them. I'm quite the opposite. I have incredible admiration for audiobook narrators because it takes a huge amount of stamina and perseverance to do, but mm-hmm. it, that wasn't for me. A real mixture. And then when I got to New York, I was I was lucky. I just sort of hit an agent at the right time, I guess, when they were looking for British people. And um, that exposed me to opportunities that I really wasn't ready for probably at the time, you know, just going to castings and I would just, anything that anyone wanted that was vaguely European or British, (laughs) they'd send my way. And yeah, I did a whole bunch of stuff, um, all kinds of things, all kinds of genres, promos, commercials, video games, um, you name it. And did you have demos when you started or, or even when you started with that agent? Yeah, well, I, yes, I, you know, coming from a production background, I was like, put a demo together, that's easy. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Little did I know that the subtlety and the nuance and the skills associated with getting performances out of people and, you know, the, the, you know, how to mix things appropriately for voiceover. Compared to music, it felt easy, um, which is certainly not the case. It's actually, it actually took me a long time to change mindset from music to voiceover. It's a really different approach. But very, very quickly, I would just, I, you know, I just pull a book off the bookshelf and start reading some kind of nonfiction thing and call that a, you know, a narration, a, a corporate narration or an e-learning or something like that. I'd pull the microwave manual out of the, the kitchen drawer, you know, and just start reading that. And that would be my technical narration or whatever. That's so smart. So, yeah, I mean, I just, <laughs> well, it's all I had. <laughs> so <laughs> it was necessity as the mother of invention, I guess. Um, so it was it was all cobbled together stuff, really. Um, and, um, you know, I, I even tell people now, I mean, you don't want to jump into demos too quickly because... Your learning curve when you start is extremely steep. So dropping two grand on a demo six weeks into your career, it's going to be (laughs) 
completely useless six months down the line because you're going to be so much better and it's not a good demonstration of you. So um, the first few months, maybe year of your career, um, and it was the case for me, it was, you know, you just sort of do what you do, what you need to do. You take a lot of coaching and I think of it, and this is what I did, I think of it more as a collection of clips rather than demo reels and full demo production. That's I sort of utilize that on the online marketplaces and on my website and um, I don't know you know what my agent did i think i they were just like this was the the era of you could just go to a casting and a lot of the work was cast in person so mm-hmm. you know obviously none of that's happening right now as we're recording in you know the latter half of january 2021 um so that there wasn't quite the necessity for the, the higher end stuff because everything was was there so um yeah i mean it was you know you do you do what you need to i guess to to make do and as my good friend Karen Gilfrey says you grow as you go I do love when she says that because it's so true I think in the beginning everybody's so anxious to make that demo but when you make it before you're ready it shows yeah and it shows to yourself you know you don't you're not confident playing it to people you're not therefore you're not going to have confidence marketing yourself um and if you don't have that confidence, you're just going to lose the motivation for it really quick. So, yeah, timing is key, I think. When I made my first demos, I actually lived in San Francisco for a little while in uh, 2010. And I made them at a studio out there that's um, phenomenal. It's called Voice One. And I took a ton of animation classes out there. So when I made my animation demo, I felt great. But I also felt like I had to make a commercial demo and what better time than, you know, with those people I had already taken classes with and felt comfortable with. But I hadn't taken as many commercial classes while I was there. Mm. So that commercial demo, I felt so nervous in the session and it shows like those spots are not great. I did use it for, you know, for a while until I was able to replace them with spots that I did or new spots that I recorded. But I can totally relate to that feeling of feeling like this is my demo. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I just don't think that helps with, you know, your confidence and you're just the daily grind, you know, you're just not gonna, you're not gonna put that, the required effort in. And, you know, you know, when you're working with a client, you do want to project a certain level of confidence in your abilities because they are putting their trust in you. You know, you wouldn't want a pilot of your plane to be nervously speaking over the PA you know you want them to be like yeah I know how to do this um and I you know it's not quite as important as flying a plane of course (laughs) but um you know I think there's a certain element of that you know you you want to have that sort of swagger a little bit of swagger if you can yeah um what was your first home studio like and when did you build that was that something that was important to you at the beginning of your career I guess you probably already had a lot of stuff from your music yeah, I mean the, the 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 equipment was all there. It was very straightforward. But I mean, my first studio in inverted commas um, was my living room, as a lot of people have just you know cobbled together something. You know, I would just pull the curtains closed and pull a, a screen behind me, and I had a you know a sort of rudimentary booth on three sides, um, facing my computer, and it actually wasn't too bad. That was like the first six months when I was sort of still in the UK. And then when we moved to New York, my wife and I were living in just a, a, a essentially it was like a like a box room, really. I was tiny in this apartment and um, we were sharing the room. We had like a futon that we would sleep on. And it was kind of great for a vocal booth, actually. But I would have to kick my wife out, you know, while I worked. 
How did she feel about that? She wasn't thrilled. No, no, no. <laughs> she was she was amazingly, uh, you know, generous with with that. But um, it was great because we had all our stuff piled up in the corners, and our clothes were just everywhere. And the futon was, you know, three quarters of the room. Um, so actually, acoustically, acoustic wise, it was great. But we didn't have any AC or anything like that. So that's that's why I hate audiobooks because I just get flashbacks of just recording over the summer in New York for hours and hours listening to my own voice, wanting to kill myself in 112 degrees. Ugh. That sounds brutal. I always joke that to do audiobooks, you have to read the book first, and I just don't have the time or the brain space. I have a young daughter, and it just feels like, how will I ever find the time yeah. quickly to read and digest and make notes and then be able to spit out a great performance? Although I will say... Um, I mean, for one thing, again, must reiterate in case people take this out of context, great admiration for audiobook narrators. And I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I love them. Um, but I will say that if you want to start building that 10,000 hours or whatever it is that Malcolm Gladwell says, you know, just working in audiobooks early on in your career is a fantastic way to desensitize yourself to your own voice. Mm you know, get great at sight reading, get your editing chops up nice and quick, you know, all of that stuff. It's like throwing you in at the deep end. So, you know, if you can do a profit share or something and there's sort of not much writing on it, but you can, you know, sort of learn your chops that way. It's a pretty express way of getting your head around doing this kind of work. So after the, uh, the, the bedroom booth, what was the kind of next iteration that morphed into getting a freestanding booth in the apartment, uh, which I found on Craigslist. Um, and he happened, the guy happened to be selling one like five blocks north of me. That's so, um Yeah, yeah. And just was in that until we left New York in 2016. And then now the booth that I'm in is, it's sort of like, it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like a walk-in closet, but it's, it's a big walk-in closet that I've treated and I've, you know, created my space in. Um, and it's really, it's, it's much longer than it is wide. So it's kind of great proportionally as a space to record in. It's, you know, I've just tweaked and tweaked for it to fit my voice. And now I, I just can't move or touch anything because it's exactly <laughs> as I want it. <laughs> um, and it's sort of in the middle of the house, so it's not connected to any external walls. So I don't get any noise interruptions. And um, so, yeah, we went from sort of open room to the freestanding booth, which served me well for a good few years, and then where I am now. And I know you're kind of a tech guru as well. Um, for people that are just starting out, I feel like the tech side of things gets very overwhelming very quickly. What kind of advice would you give to someone who, you know, starts to feel that overwhelm? You know, where, where do people even begin? Uh, well, the the space that you're in is the key. Anyone that knows anything about audio tech is going to tell you that, as it relates to voiceover, is going to tell you that, that the space is by far the most important element. And there are two fundamental considerations. It's noise interruptions and how you can stop them <laughs> and what the sound sounds like within that space. Um, so they're two different things. And people think that the, the foam and the treatment and stuff that you have within the space helps to insulate yourself from interruptions. That doesn't really do that. It actually just helps with the, the 
acoustic properties of the space as in how it sounds when you're within it so it's a bit like when you move into a new place and you walk into the living room for the first time and it sounds all echoey and gross and then you put your sofa in there and you put a rug down and it all of a sudden starts to feel a bit more homely and a bit more cozy that's what we're trying to do within our space so you don't have to spend a ton of money actually creating that environment you just need to bring a lot of soft squishy stuff (laughs) into that space Um, If you're just maybe you've just got a walk-in closet or you're in the corner of a room and, you know, maybe you can construct one of those PVC pipe booths that people use and cover that in in some, you know, uh, acoustic blankets and stuff. If you have that pleasant sounding space, you're 90% of the way there already. Noise interruption, stopping that is a real pain in the ass. So you do have to kind of pick a good place or work around noise interruptions before you have to start talking about like construction or spending $12,000 on a booth. But when you have that good sounding space, a, a cheap USB microphone in a great space is going to sound infinitely better than an expensive microphone in a crappy space. But the good news is there, once you've got that space, is, like I said earlier with mine, just don't change it. Once it sounds good, you, you got it, you, nothing needs to change. Um, you know, you do all your work in advance, once it's, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, and then, as Karin's famous expression, you grow as you go. You know, you upgrade as as you move forward in your career, as you can afford it. Um, I I tell this to people all the time. You don't have to go about once once you've got that good sounding space. You record into your microphone at the right level, so the 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 volume going into your computer is 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 a is the right level, which you know is a dis- different discussion. But um, then, essentially, your responsibility is taking out the errors and then sending that off. People get obsessed with noise reduction and compression and EQ and things like that, and I equate that to a butcher pre-seasoning all of their meat before they give it to you. Mm. Um, uh, if you really want to be focused on creating this beautiful cut of meat, like a you know like a side of beef or something, um, and you're just giving that to whoever you're working with to then cook and prepare and everything. So if you just think about keeping it clean and simple, you know don't don't complicate things. Nine times out of ten, or ninety nine times out of a hundred, that is what the person you're sending it to wants to receive. Because then they can add all the seasoning. They can cook it and put garlic on it and whatever they need to do. Um, so you can, I mean, going simple is is rarely a bad choice. If tech isn't your thing, keep it simple. I love that I've never heard that before, that analogy. And it is so perfect that, you know, even for someone who's been doing this for a while, I feel like that just hit a little light bulb. Like, oh, right, I don't have to obsess over it because that's actually someone else's job. Yeah, and you're painting them into a corner. You know, if if you get a piece of meat and it's already been seasoned, you know, well, you've, there's not much you can do with beyond that, right? So you don't actually, it can be detrimental. That's why a lot of the time we're asked for raw audio because people try and cover up deficiencies. Look, let's be honest, if you do have a space that has problems, maybe, yeah, it would be good to apply a bit of, noise reduction or something like that but that's only good until you have a live session and you can't apply that live so you're going to get found out when you do a live session anyway Um, so again prioritize your space if you have a good space 
you know, it's it's akin to, I guess, just really torturing this analogy. It's like looking after the animal, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so they have like good meat. Um, but yeah, I, I just, you know, just, you don't, if you don't, if you're scared of and you see EQs and compression and you don't know what all the buttons do and you have very little interest in learning, you know, I don't blame you. Um, don't go into it. Have someone who knows what they're talking about listen to your audio and offer you advice about how you can improve things at the recording stage. So when you're actually speaking into the microphone. So whether that's to do with mic placement, how you speak into the microphone and your sort of mic technique, the room, any of those things, the level that you're recording at, those are the critical things that you can control that will make that, you know, product that you can then give to to the engineer or to the mixer or whoever. You know, I, I have a lot of patience for people's talent right now in COVID times who are living in somewhere like New York and they have neighbours. I, I went through it myself and sometimes it is just a less than stellar environment to record in. Someone's playing music or there's a truck idling outside and you do have to just try and figure out a solution to how to make this thing work. And that's when you do, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. You do have to figure out this stuff. You do have to figure out what RX is and how you can use it to maybe, you know, save the day. Um, but yeah, if you don't need it, don't just apply it and don't just throw yourself into it without, with, you know, for no reason. Yeah, for those in the city, I feel like it was dog barking and, yeah, trucks and honking horns. And now in the suburbs, I'm dealing with lawnmowers and snowblowers and leaf blowers yeah. and it's like a different type of noise but still just as annoying yeah yeah my neighbor has the tiniest lawnmower i've ever seen but it's from like 1947 or something it's and it's it's like a two-stroke or something i don't know what the hell this engine is like it makes such a noise you can hear it for miles it's i i don't i mean he's pretty old so maybe he got it when it was new he uh, this thing just obviously it never breaks down or anything but it's the noisiest thing and it makes its way into my booth so that's that's one random element that i have to deal with still yeah so once you upgraded your booth i'm assuming you also upgraded a microphone your microphone as well yeah I and mean, i've always got i mean i'm a bit of a nerd so i've got a fair amount of microphones sort of fetishize them a little bit the one I've landed on that I've used a ton now, and this is the one I'm speaking to you on now, is the Rode NTG5, which I actually prefer to my 416 for my voice. It just has a very, um, it doesn't hype anything so that you can actually get in there and you can take it in a number of directions. It would, it would work for a long form narration because it's not harsh, but if you need it to cut through, you can do all the processing that I told you not to do. And you can really like liven it up really well and make it really exciting and jagged so i just i find it's just the the microphone that i've settled on that just covers every base and means i can adjust things after the after the fact rather than having to switch up microphones for the right gig you know so let's talk a little bit about your um your work in video games because i know you do a ton of that work and that's a really popular genre that a lot of people want to get into and i also don't know much about it uh, well, it, it wasn't a plan. Um, I'm a union talent, and so uh, I I have been for a little while now. And the the games I didn't come up gradually doing small games, apps, indie games, and progressing, you know, to the triple A's. 
I just went to castings, <laughs> you know, and because I'm union talent, I went to the union castings and I would have access to these game opportunities. And the thing that really opened the door, which is sort of my biggest claim to fame, is is my role in Rainbow Six Siege. I play a character called Thatcher. And, you know, it, it was, you know, I was in the first iteration of the game and it's just blown up to being this gigantic, you know, phenomena. But, you know, just being with my agent means I get opportunities when they come up. And uh, in the last year, because I've got my studio set up and I know what I'm doing from the tech side and I've got a bit of experience, the game stuff has just skyrocketed. I've done so much in the last year. And again, all came through my agent. And um, I've booked straight off my demo. Um, obviously, I've gone through the casting process, you know, when things come. You know, it helps that I'm a British guy and, you know, a lot of games, you know, require sort of, I don't know, Game of thrones kind of characters, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, that's that's how it works. And um, the studio requirements are a little, little different for games. They're a little more particular um, because, of course, they're, you know, very technical in, in their nature and there's a lot of dynamic variation in the performances so you're screaming full tilt one minute and you could be whispering into an intercom the next you know so mm. you know you have to keep control of your preamp and keep riding that gain and you know you find the settings that this the scream setting is a certain level and then the the whisper setting is another setting and you know throughout the session you're adjusting this stuff um so there's there's a bit more of a technical requirement these days when we're recording from home. But, you know, I, I have done a session in studio this year, this year even during COVID, because we'd started a game before COVID, so we kind of had to <laughs> go back to the studio for consistency. But yeah, I mean, I that that's tends to be how it how they come about is is through my agent. And um then when you get in a in a franchise, you know, you get to know the company and then they can think of you for, for other characters and other games within that company. So it's a sort of, it's a, it's a, a slow, gradual progression. But if you, if you get in that killer hit, you get exposure, huge exposure. So, you know, it's pretty cool. I got recognized in Olive Garden once. That was quite, quite cool. Um. That's amazing. <laughs> um, what does a typical video game session look like? So if, if it is a screamer, <laughs> you do hope that they'll keep the session short. Um, if it's a real big screaming session, you know, we try and keep it to two hours rather than the full four. But, you know, sometimes you'll just get a few lines that in there that, that you know, you're really blasting out. Um, generally, it's a mixture. You do like lines, you know, your lines, particularly like gameplay lines. Um, You've also got, they call them different things in different companies, but Ono's is, is one of the, like Ubisoft uses that. You know, so that's like efforts and stuff like that and like punching and kicking and, and all that kind of thing. And then there's just sort of, um, sort of dying, gargling, panting, running, you know, footsteps. Not, you're not making the footsteps, but as the footsteps are happening, you'll sort of breathe certain breathing paces, all that kind of stuff. Sometimes you'll have little animatics on the screen. So they'll, they'll, and you know have show you the motion and then you have to make a sound to match that motion um so it's fun it's it's really varied it's great um so that's a lot of the gameplay stuff but then you also have the cinematics so they're those little like movie sections that play between certain parts of the game or in, in before you start playing or you know once you've completed something 
and they're fully dramatic sessions where you're actually playing a part as if it was, you know, like an animation or something like that. We've done those in mocap and I've done those just from home. Tell us a little bit about mocap. That was going to be my next question and you led me right there. Oh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, mocap is is a whole other ball game. Um, it's a lot of fun, very much out of my comfort zone because I was very used to just being in the booth with the script in front of you. So the first time I did that was uh, illuminating. <laughs> um, yeah, you. So you've probably, you know, everyone's probably seen what it looks like. You standing there and you're like pajama suit with the balls on it, and you got the head headgear with the lights and the cameras. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit more like being on a movie set. You know, you have cameras all around you and you also have, most of the time you have like a, someone booming you as well as someone shooting you with like a shoulder cam. You have obviously mics on you as well. You're interacting with other people. You can just be walking from one side of the volume to the other. You could be having a conversation. You could be having a fight. It's a bit weird because the cameras and the lights are right in your eye line because they're looking directly at your face. So you obviously, you can't get too close to another actor. You have to kind of look over the top of the cameras, which is a, a little odd. And there's all kind of tech considerations for like where you can put props and stuff because, you know, you're not necessarily wearing the the outfit that the character is. So, you know, maybe your, your character is carrying a backpack or something like that or a bag or, or I don't know like holding a loaf of bread you know you've got to sort of create that with little blocks of foam or, or things like that so there's all these like technical considerations and everything that's within the space has to be accounted for by the computer so before and after every take you have to put all your props down on the floor and you have to stand in t-pose and then the, the the computer like calibrates you and then you can walk off and you're done but if you just walk off the set once you've finished, when once the director shouted "cut," the computer's like, "Where the hell is this guy? What you know? Where is he? What what's what's happened?" So there's a few like technical weird things that you have to get used to. But it's great. I mean, you get to uh, actually interact with other actors, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. Uh, but you do have to be off book. That's the only pain in the ass thing about it. So you're actually recording the voiceover while you're recording the movement. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm very into preparing. So I don't like it when they just change the script or throw new lines at you in, in the last minute. That, I, I'm not a big fan of that, <laughs> which does happen because, you know, they don't necessarily know what it's going to play until everyone just gets in, in the volume together. And you do have a rehearsal period, of course, but um, that that freaks me out, having to just sort of, you know, memorize all that stuff, in the, you know, on the spot. But... Other than that, I, I really, it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it's cool. It's definitely something different. Yeah. Are there classes? I mean, not in the moment, but in real life, are there classes for mocap? Yeah. Where there are mocap volumes, um, studios, they tend to be classes. So I go up to uh, Montreal to do it. And um, I know that ACTRA, if any of your Canadian listeners are familiar, ACTRA do a lot of classes. And I'm pretty sure in L.A., I think Jason Lanier White knows knows classes that happen there. There's a there's a sort of guru guy over there that does a lot of mocap that that leads classes. I forget the name of the company, but I actually just to introduce people on the East Coast to it, I actually brought down Carlo Mistroni, who is a very successful voice actor and mocap actor based in Montreal, to come down to New York 
like this time last year and just teach a class in in New York. We didn't have all the tech, but we went through the whole process. He had the props and we ran it like a mocap session. So with the T-pose and with all the considerations that I was talking about, um, which I would have loved to have done before my first mocap session. I was going to say that seems like a lot if you're just used to acting on stage or even not, and then you're used to just voice acting in a booth and now you're sort of doing everything plus some technical things that seems like a lot to just be thrown into and kind of trial by fire it was and the first time i did it actually it was only it was facial capture but we were performing so um there was a lot of fighting involved and you know i'm not really i don't really do that it's not really a part of my thing that i you know say that i can do so what they'd done is they'd actually shot the scenes in europe with some like stunt guys um before so we had a tv and they played the scene out and we had to recreate it and they just captured our we had the head headgear on but we didn't have the, the dots on our on our bodies um so we had to recreate the scene like to the second so they would say right you've got you're starting out over here you've got two seconds to walk to that table you've got to pick that thing up you turn you say your line and you say that within three and a half seconds and blah 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 and it was just such it was <laughs> a lot to deal with and on top of the technical stuff and it was you know the the best introduction because i don't think it's ever going to get more complicated than that but oh my lord that was that was a day and it and it, we ran over as well like so it was like I don't know, probably a good 10 hours of doing that. And wow. by the end of it, I just went into the hotel and just like sunk into the bath and just had to decompress, you know. But it was, I mean, it, the end product was great, but that was a little overwhelming. But um, you, normal mocap isn't like that. You know, you that's the benefit of it is that you have that freedom to give your full performance. And, you know, video game work, generally speaking, you know, it, it's you don't have any scope to improvise or change things or adapt. With mocap, there's a bit more scope to change things up a little bit um, because they're wanting to to incorporate some of those human quirks and and things that they can't necessarily write into the script. So they're actually wanting that. So that's actually you know that's actually a lot of fun because you don't get to do that so much in video games otherwise. Do they animate the games before or after the sessions? The voiceovers recorded after, yeah. So they take your what's called constellation so you can actually see it's funny like in some mocap sessions you can act they actually sort of do a little bit of pre-animation on the constellation so you can see basically when you watch it on the tvs on the computers you can see your movement as dots you know um but they can just do a little pre-visualization of the character roughly there so you can kind of and sometimes you've got a big tv and you can actually watch it while you're performing it's it's really bizarre hmm. but they take all of that information and then they they animate on top of all those performances and and stuff but um but yeah what's cool is you can actually you can have one person doing um half of your performance and then you can pick up for the second half of the performance and they can just digitally adjust the dots you know so your forearm is slightly longer than the other person's forearm so they just shift the dots a little bit and then all of a sudden you match so there's a lot of like mixing and matching going on um so that's i mean it's it's a real technical rabbit hole going down there it's it's nuts it's way way above my knowledge <laughs> but um yeah it's it's cool it's it's great what they can do well before we wrap up i i'd like to finish with asking you what advice would you give to your first year voiceover self 
uh, take more classes. <laughs> I was too overly confident. <laughs> I should have taken more classes to, I would have moved myself on quicker. You know, I got there, I got there in the end, but I think I would have advanced much quicker if I'd have, you know, just not been so stingy and paid the money to take some classes. Didn't have a lot of money, so I mean, I guess I didn't really have many options. But if you can take classes, I mean, now with workshops and workout groups and stuff like that, and like Tim's VO Weekly Workout and stuff like that, um, there's so many opportunities for you to learn about this industry relatively cheaply maybe not one-to-one -one if you can't afford it but certainly in like group classes um that just didn't exist you started in i think a similar time to me right early 2009 2000 is that what you said earlier yeah yeah so it's quite a lot different now isn't it i mean in terms mm -hmm. of what you can do to learn this industry so seize those opportunities you know they're they're out there but be careful about who you're getting your information from there's a lot of people who are just out to exploit you and make money from you so Research the people that are offering the classes. Make sure they're, they know what they're talking about, that they have a good reputation among people that know what they're talking about. Um, but yeah, as long as you do your due diligence, I would, I would definitely recommend taking classes and, and um, throwing yourself in and trying figuring figuring things out and figuring out what the market thinks of you and what casting directors think of you. And the easiest way to do that is to for example, take a workshop with a casting director, <laughs> see what they say. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I think that would be my advice to myself and what I preach to other people too. And I think the coolest thing is that right now you can take a class with literally anyone anywhere in the world. The COVID times are weird, but there's some definite silver linings, and that's been one for me is just classes with all sorts of people I never, ever would have met before. Absolutely. I completely agree. And Taking a class with someone like that is is you're getting double benefit. You're getting obviously the educational, but you're you're getting to read for them. You're networking with them. So, you know, if you can network with a whole bunch of casting directors in LA because they're now online that you wouldn't have done eighteen months ago, that's got to be a positive thing. Well, thank you, Jamie. This was incredibly educational in so many different ways, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. so many great takeaways from this episode and tips about getting great sound for your home studio. I think my favorite bit of advice was Jamie's analogy about the butcher not seasoning the meat for you. Having great audio from the start and not having to do much post-processing is so important. Plus, we also got a peek into the video game and mocap industry, which was really fun. If you'd like to learn more about Jamie, I'm linking his website and socials in the show notes, which you can find at my website, www.stephaniepamroberts.com podcast. And to stay updated about future episodes, please follow me on Instagram at Stephanie Pam Roberts VO. As I grow this podcast, it would be amazing if you would take a moment to subscribe, leave a review, and or tell a friend who might also be on their voiceover journey. Thanks for listening. And here's a little teaser of next week's episode with my guest, Michael Crouch. One of the most valuable pieces of advice I can give is just to be tenacious, to be persistent and patient. Um, I've had to be very patient through this process. That's next time on Making It to the Mic.